<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You know, the United States uh, spent millions of dollars. My recollection was $49 million, maybe it was $74 million. But in any, whatever it was, it was millions and millions of dollars to help develop this drug, remdesivir. It was developed originally to deal with Ebola virus. It's an antiviral drug. And then they thought, okay, well, maybe it could work against SARS and MERS. And so they started doing some of those studies. And that led them to think, well, maybe this could even work against the coronavirus. A company uh, by the name of Gilead has acquired the rights to the drug that was developed with your money and mine. And they are now telling us that they're going to give us, us being the entire United States, Enough of this drug to treat 78,000 hospitalized patients. That is not enough to cover all Americans. There are more than 300,000 eligible patients in the United States. 300,000 people hospitalized. If I'm reading this news story from Bloomberg.com, this is by Kristen Flanagan. More than 300,000 eligible patients in the U.S. will not have access to the Foster City, California-based company's treatment through the end of July. That and continued limited supply almost through, the, uh, through almost the end of the year could put pressure on state health departments, according to uh, Abrams. That's Brian Abrams, who is an RBC analyst. He's looking at their stock price and all that kind of stuff. He says initial supply of remdesivir is likely to be constrained to an even greater degree than we had previously estimated. Worldwide, they're going to distribute one and a half million vials. We get 78,000 patients, enough for 78,000 people. That's uh, 607,000 vials. Isn't that nice of them? Meanwhile, the Fed is expanding their protocols. How much longer are we going to have to endure this? I and randization of our politics. Phil Proctor, one of the original Firesign Theater guys, well, he's still with the Firesign Theater. They're still around. You know, he's a friend, and, and he sent me an email a couple days ago, a cartoon. And it was a father and son in the son's bedroom, and they were sitting on the bed talking. And the father had this book in his hand, or, or uh, some magazine. He had something in his hand that looked kind of like a book or a pile of magazines. And the kid's got this really concerned look on his face, and dad's got kind of a grim look on his face. And the caption says, Dad's speaking, and Dad is saying to his teenage son, I don't care about the porno magazines or the cigarettes. I want to know where you got this copy of Ayn Rand's book. 
<laughs> and it was like, right. I mean, that's what's destroying America, right? In the first hour, I was talking about, you know, Republicans don't believe in governance. They don't believe in government. They say government is the cause of your problems. It's not the solution. Don't look to government for solution. If you want solutions to your problem, look to the billionaires. Look to the big corporations. They'll take care of you after they make themselves insanely rich. They'll take care of you, not to worry. And apparently that, that idea is continuing. Down in Dallas, you'll recall, you know, back, oh, a month or two ago, Donald Trump had this big hoop-de-doop in the White House on the West Lawn where he brought out these uh, CEOs from these various companies, you know, from Walmart, Walgreens and Walmart and whatever. I mean, just a bunch of, you know, well-known American retail brands and said, we're going to set up coronavirus testing spots, drive-through testing stations in thousands of locations across the United States. Now, of course, he was lying through his teeth, as Trump does whenever he speaks. But his saying that caused his team and his uh, and some of his, uh, you know, billionaire corporate backers to say, well, you know, we really should create a couple of these. I think they set up either seven or nine of them nationwide. It's a very small number. It's, it, I, I know it's fewer than 15. My recollection is it was either seven or nine of them. Two of them were in Dallas County. And those two, according to a, a, a judge, uh, Judge Clay Jenkins, Dallas County judge, says uh, those two testing sites, which are testing 1,000 people a day right now, Dallas, Texas. He says the feds are getting out of testing. They're going to shut these things down. Dallas County just reported two more deaths yesterday, by the way. These opened uh, on the weekend of uh, March 21st at the American Airlines Center near downtown in Ellis Field, Ellis Davis Fieldhouse in the Red Bird area. Each one can conduct 500 tests a day. But Donald Trump has decided, we don't need no stinking testing. We're just going to try to infect everybody in America and, uh, you know, we'll let the old people and the poor people die. And then all the good, healthy white people will have herd immunity and we'll be back to an economy that works. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. You think he's going to pull it off, as awful as that sounds? I think he's setting us up for a huge second wave. On the line with us, our buddy, Lori Wallach. Lori is the big cheese, the, the executive director of Republic Citizens Global Trade Watch, citizen.org slash trade or tradewatch.org. You can tweet her at Wallach Lori or at PCGTW. Lori, welcome back. I'm so glad to have you with us. It's been a while since we've talked. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the current situation with pharmaceuticals. Years ago, I bought some pharmaceuticals from a pharmacy in Canada, and I've been on their mailing list for years now. As a result of that, the price of the drug that I was taking has dropped somewhat here in the United States, ironically, weirdly. But I'm still getting their newsletter, and they've been talking about how the supply chains have been badly interrupted, that 95% of the drugs coming into Canada and presumably North America are coming either from India or China. The raw ingredients are being made in China. The pills are being pressed in India. India has shut down because of the coronavirus virus. China's been holding back. Where are we at with all this stuff? And, and should Americans be concerned about our drug supply? Tom, you're spot on in that concern, because in a way, one of the pieces of strongest evidence of the failure of the hyper globalized 
corporate rig trade system is that we have very little resilience or redundancy in the supply chain for medicines, for all the PPE. We saw the crisis mm-hmm. with masks, with ventilators. So you are spot on. The U.S. Health and Human Services Department says that we are reliant 90% on imports for masks, 70% for respirators, and that 80% of all of the medicines, including the active pharmaceutical ingredients, the stuff that actually makes the medicines, are coming from either India or China. Wow. My recollection is that back in the 60s, and I'm sure you know these numbers better than I do, and I'm doing this from old memory, back sometime in the 60s or in that neighborhood of time, we passed, in order to help out Puerto Rico, we passed some real substantial tax breaks, particular categories of business. Pharmaceuticals were the largest, where if they located to Puerto Rico, their tax bill went down substantially. And so most of our drugs during the period from whenever that happened up until around 2000 were being manufactured down in Puerto Rico. But that at some point, I don't recall if it was the late 90s or the early 2000s, but somewhere in there, the free traders got a hold of this. And I don't know if this was partisan or not and said, uh, let's just do away with those tax breaks. They did away with the tax breaks. The factories, the drug factories in Puerto Rico shut down. Puerto Rico was thrown into a depression. The drug manufacturing all went to China and India. And now we're stuck with we can't even get drugs in this hemisphere. Am I remembering that right? You are remembering that right. And that tax policy was basically to spur investment in Puerto Rico. And it was eliminated. At the same time, it was sort of a conglomeration of bad things. That tax change happened, which removed the incentive to produce in Puerto Rico. But also, we saw the WTO and NAFTA go into place that gave these crazy guaranteed 20-year monopoly patents plus criminal penalties for their violation in countries around the world. So it was suddenly much safer with basically the U.S. government insuring these monopoly protections for pharmaceutical outsourcers to go take their formulas and their medicines and make them someplace cheaper. At the same time, as we domestically were generally creating incentives like tax benefits if you outsource, which Bush too did, and now Trump has doubled down where he charges 20% on corporate profits made in the U.S. and 10% on those made overseas. So all the incentives have exactly the wrong kind of behavior have us in a situation where we are untenably reliant on unreliable, super long, brittle, thin supply chains. Where even like you know, the whole ventilator story, everyone has been, everyone who's basically kind of scoffed at the, you know, the elite lucky people who didn't lose a job with the 5 million manufacturing jobs you've lost in the last 20 years of those kind of policies. Why are you guys so worried about trade and where things are made? And suddenly everyone is saying, What do you mean we can't make or get the basic things we need? We're America. And then you explain, like, hey, guys, we may have invented some of those ventilators, but the corporations, to make the biggest profit, they've got 100 key pieces, most of which are made offshore. So even if you wanted to get the manufacturing, the assembly happening, we've set up a system where we've outsourced all the pieces, the parts. We're totally, totally vulnerable. Thank you for giving the lie, by the way, to Trump's, I mean, you know, one of his major sales pitches, particularly to the industrial Midwest, is, you know, I'm changing our policies to encourage companies to bring their jobs back here, when in fact his, uh, his replacement for NAFTA 
cuts corporate taxes in half if you move your manufacturing to Mexico, as you just pointed out. COVID-19 is kind of causing the world to rethink trade. It's coming on the back end of the whole Brexit thing. And we've got this very weird relationship between Donald Trump and China where, you know, he's trying to trash China for political purposes, but he's still making his Trump products in China. His daughter, I'm assuming, you know, I don't know what all is going on here, but tell me about this weird relationship between Trump and China. Well, one of the key things to know is it's hard to know if it is nefarious self-dealing, could be, or if it's incompetence, could be, (laughs) or it's a combination. Because here is a thing, Tom, that like, put down if you have hot tea in your hand, you want to throw it. In the beginning of January, the trade data shows clearly that China basically stopped exporting the masks, the ventilators, the gloves, the stuff, the medicine were were very overly, unreasonably, dangerously reliant on. So you can see that in the trade data. And at the same time, the Trump Commerce Department, in trying to prove the point that Trump's trade with China has been like a great thing, they're promoting U.S. companies to export to China. The limited production in the U.S. of masks, of ventilators, of gloves. And luckily, Congressman Lloyd Doggett caught one of these commerce alerts to a company was sent to him. And it's showing them trying to basically outsource the stuff that we need in the crisis as the imports that Reliant on are no longer coming in. So if you go to our website, which is tradewatch.org, that's tradewatch.org, we have a whole new special feature on exactly what you said, which is how the COVID crisis is laying bare the structural disaster of globalization that many Americans and working people in developed countries and many people in developing countries understood, but that now is being laid bare for all of us trying to get through this crisis. And one of the things we did is we went back and ran the data that shows this kind of nefarious, strange duplicity with China, where you can see, look, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. We use the public data. You can see our exports are falling off of all these things we obviously are going to need in our country at the same time that we're pushing out the door to China, exports of the same things that we don't make enough of to start. So that is, that is just an example. I mean, again, people have said, do you think that was some kind of weird self-dealing thing, or do you think that was just stupidity? And I said, why do we have to make a choice? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you're, what you're talking about is Trump shipping millions of pounds or tons or whatever it was of uh, PPE to China in January, right? And February and March. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Lori Wallach, you can read all about it at tradewatch.org, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Lori, I always learn something from you. Thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Thank you. Michael Mann, in addition to writing dire predictions, understanding climate change, the hockey stick and the climate wars, dispatches from the front lines. He basically invented the hockey stick that Al Gore popularized. His book, The Madhouse Effect with Tom Tolles, his children's book, The Tantrum that Saved the World, a press release from Penn State University. Dr. Michael Mann, distinguished professor of atmospheric sciences and director of Penn State's Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State, has been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, recognizing distinguished and continuing achievements in original research. Membership in the NAS is one of the highest honors given to any scientist or engineer 
in the United States. By the way, National Academy of Sciences was established in 1863, signed into law by President Lincoln specifically to recognize achievement in science and then basically to ask those people who are members of the academy to be advisors in the areas of science, engineering, health policy, et cetera, science basically, to be advisors to the federal government and any agency that may need help from the federal government. I mean, this is, this is incredible. Dr. Michael Mann, congratulations, sir. Michael Mann, M-A-N-N dot net, by the way, is the website. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today and congratulations. Uh, thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure, my friend. I have a bunch of questions. The first, and I think this is a kind of a broad one for you being one of the top climate scientists on the planet, is has this level of economic shutdown, you know, we were warned a couple, two, three years ago that we had 10 years. The IPCC said, you guys don't get your emissions down to this level within 10 years. All hell is going to break loose. I'm wondering, you know, I, I take a walk now. The sky is clear. I can see Mount Hood down, you know, 100 miles away as if it was next door. There are literally no jet trails in the sky. We live near an airport. Maybe one, one plane takes off an hour. Are we there yet? I mean, it, it has the coronavirus shut down world activity, has it taken us to 100% of the IPCC's goal for 2020? Or are we only 50%? I mean, where, and what does this tell us about what we need to do going forward to achieve those goals? Yeah, all great questions. And the reality is somewhat sobering. What feels like a shutdown of our entire economy and certainly a, a very substantial decrease in transportation and carbon emissions generated from transportation, uh, what seems like life-changing changes in lifestyle have only gotten us about maybe 6 to 8% uh, reduction in carbon emissions. And we need to bring those carbon emissions down by 10% every year for the next decade if we're going to avoid crossing that threshold of uh, dangerous planetary warming. So that gives you an idea of the challenge, the monumental challenge that we face here. Even these what feel like draconian changes um, in lifestyle haven't even gotten us the 10% that we need for this year. And then we've got to go beyond that another 10% next year and even further cuts another 10% the next year. What this drives home for me and I think a lot of my colleagues is that individual behavioral change it's part of the solution, but that alone isn't going to get us where we need to go. If we're going to achieve those sorts of reductions, then we need support at the highest level. We need governmental policies that will incentivize a shift away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And we need politicians, right, who are actually going to support those policies, who are going to do what's right for us and the planet rather than what's in the best interest of the powerful vested interests who often fund their campaigns. So it sounds to me like the essence of what you're saying, Dr. Mann, is that we have used a relatively blunt instrument, this brute force thing of everybody just yeah. stay home for three months now to bend the curve down by 6%, but we've got to yeah. hit 10%. The Republicans and the fossil fuel industry are going to say, okay, you've got the you know a, another great depression as a result of just 6%, and you want more? And your response right. sounds to me like what you're saying is, yes, we can get a larger carbon emission reduction without the Great Depression by doing it smart exactly instead right. of doing it with a sledgehammer. That's exactly right, Tom. In fact, it's the opposite, right, of what, of what the talking points of the, the critics would hold. Actually, as we know, moving to renewable energy generates all sorts of new jobs. Uh, it's good for the economy. 
and obviously it's much better for the planet. So it's a win-win. There's no reason not to do it. The only obstacle right now is, as I alluded to, the fact that we have you know, fossil fuel interests who are currently essentially running our government under the Trump administration. We need to replace that government. We have an election coming up in months. We need to vote in politicians who will act on this problem before it's too late, before we truly do destroy the livability of this planet for future generations. Yeah, well, given that a coal lobbyist is running the Environmental Protection Agency and an oil lobbyist is running yep. the Interior Department, I would say we're, we're a full capture here. Yeah. Another story that has been haunting me, it's, it's popped up all over the place. It started the science magazines and it's migrated into the popular press, is that the, uh, the, the so-called wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius you know, wet bulb is where basically it's it's so hot and the humidity is so high that humans cannot evaporate perspiration enough to cool themselves down. It's the old, you know, it doesn't feel hot in Arizona because the air is so dry. But, you know, even 10 degrees, you know, even something in the 90s rather than in the hundreds, if you're surrounded by 80 percent humidity, will kill you. That this is going to be the new normal for much of the uh, equatorial regions of the planet and could endanger literally billions of humans. Can you tell us about that? What is what is the state of this science? How certain it is? It what kind of time frame are you looking at? Yeah, sure. So this uh, recent study highlights this problem, but it's something that we've known. The fact is, a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. So in general, uh, you get more humid conditions in places like the tropics, and it gets hotter. So it gets hotter and more humid. And we all know from our own experiences that it's those very hot, very humid summer days that really do a number on us, that make it very difficult to be outside, uh, to be active. And as you allude to, that becomes the new normal. Think of the hottest, most humid summer day you've ever experienced. We'll simply call that summer by mid-century. That will be the typical conditions that we expect to see in the summer here, even in the mid-latitudes, if we continue on the path that we're on. And there are regions, a large swath in the tropics, where that combination of heat and humidity will literally be deadly. It will be too hot and human uh, for human beings. And so what we're talking about, as we all know, is less space, less land for us because the tropics become unlivable, because our coastlines become flooded. Some of our largest coastal regions become flooded because of sea level rise. So there's less land, there's less fresh water, there's less food. And there's 7.8 billion and growing people on this planet. And that's a prescription for a disaster if we don't do something now. And by doing something, I'm assuming you're talking about getting carbon emissions under control. Yeah, I'm talking about uh, voting Donald Trump out of office, of course. But no, absolutely. <laughs> that's the first step. But what we need, uh, indeed, is policies at the highest level. We need the U.S to actually become a leader again when it comes to the, the worldwide efforts to avert catastrophic climate change. And we had that leadership under Barack Obama. Sure, we can fault certain policies here or there, but we were on the right track. And of course, under Trump, we've headed off in the wrong direction now. Dr. Michael Mann, his uh, most recent book, The Madhouse Effect, his website, michaelmann.net, M-A-N-N.net. And you can tweet him at Michael Mann. Dr. Mann, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. It's always great talking. With you. Thank right. you. You too, Tom. Thanks. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Vicki in Gilmanton, Wisconsin. Hey, Vicki, what's up? Hi. I remember back in the day a couple of years ago when I read Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb and his oh, yeah, talk the 70s. about... 
a couple of years ago. Anyway, why is our country so hell-bent on not allowing any other countries that we help to even talk about population control? Because of Catholicism in large part, the Catholic ban on birth control, which really you know, just started a few hundred years ago, and on abortion, that Catholic ban was adopted by basically racists. You know, uh, Hitler, for example, oh. adopted that because he wanted the good white German women to produce more good white German babies. And you saw the same thing with Ceausescu in in, uh, Romania, I believe it was, uh, his country. You see the same thing, uh, you know, right now with Orban in Hungary encouraging, you know, population growth among white people in the country. And so, you know, to a large extent, the anti-birth control movement and the anti-abortion movement are joined at the hip in many ways and in many places with the we want more white people and fewer people of color movement, which includes the whole Stephen Miller thing about, um, you know, in the 1920s, Mm. I think it was 1924, the United States passed its first racially based, well, actually it was the second. The first one was in 1883. I believe it was called the Chinese Exclusion Act, which which barred the importation of laborers from China. And then in the the 1920s, Mm -hmm. I think it was 24, we passed a law that basically only allowed immigration from European countries, from white countries, and essentially banned immigration from countries where there were a lot of people of color. That was changed in the 60s. It was somewhere between 64 and 67. Lyndon Johnson, I believe, might have been Kennedy, but I'm pretty sure it was LBJ, changed that law and created a lottery system for people of color, not just Africa, but you know, around the world. As a result, from the 60s until just this last two or three years, you had, of the million immigrants who came to the United States, prior to the 60s, they were almost all white people. After the 60s, they were about half people of color and half white people, and in some cases, more people of color, because the world population is mostly people of color. More people of color Mm -hmm. were coming into the United States than white people. And Donald Trump and Stephen Miller set out to change that. And so that whole movement about making, making America white again, which is really the subtext to make America great again, has combined with the anti-birth control and anti-abortion movement. It originally came out of Catholicism, which was in part to increase the number of Catholics. I mean, you could take this back back to the Middle Ages in some ways, back to the days when whichever tribe or whichever group had the largest population, the most young men in their armies, they won the wars. And so the Catholics were like, we're going to outpopulate the Protestants. And, you know, here we are. And we need to have, you know, a reasonable conversation about population. And we need to also have a conversation about the relationship between efforts to stifle uh, birth control and abortion and efforts to stifle the rights of women, because it's all the same stuff. Carol in uh, Manassas, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, thank you for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I really enjoyed Dr. Mann. He's very, very knowledgeable. I feel that it's really kind of sad with Trump in office and all these supporters of Trump, the cultists, that they are denying both the COVID-19 and climate change. And either one of those two things can do us all in. But as far as the climate change goes, I've noticed it. I mean, I've been around a while, not to say how old I am, but I have been around a while. And I can remember when things were very different. And we were walking up our hill the other day, And I saw animals that I have not seen in, God, decades. There was a big old groundhog standing like a sentinel 
by our fence. I mean, it was so ah. funny. He was just standing there. And I've uh. seen red squirrels. I've seen uh, just so many uh, woodpecker with the red head. Things I have never Sean seen saw, in years. Sean saw a coyote driving into work this morning. Oh, for heaven's sake. We had two deer here the other day just by our tree. I mean, it's just a remarkably different. And when you're outside, the air feels so different and smells different. Mm-hmm. But now, yeah. as far as the climate goes, I mean, I definitely am not a climate denier. But I have to say, we have been freezing to death here in May in western Pennsylvania. Now, I know you said it was hot yesterday in uh, Oregon, but we're freezing here. (laughs) Yeah, but one of the ways that climate change shows up is in abnormal cold, just like abnormal heat. And, uh, you know, you, you guys got that bomb cyclone thing on the East Coast. That's because the jet stream is collapsing. The jet stream is collapsing because the Arctic ice is melting. So that's why you got cold, Carol. Carol, I gotta run, but thank you for the call. Marvelous animals. Dave in Stillicom, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Regarding climate change, you know, there's really no single magic bullet. Greenhouse gas reduction, yeah, it's huge, very important. But you know what? It's only half the solution. What's the other half? Carbon sequestration. We need to protect the trees, protect the meadows that filter out the carbon and produce oxygen. If we do one without the other, guess what? It ain't going to work. We need both. Okay, forests, trees, not only sequester out, filter out carbon and produce oxygen, but wildlife habitat, stress reduction, all sorts of beneficial psychodynamic benefits from trees and leaving the green stuff alone. We need to stop clear-cutting, stop replacing forests with huge parking lots that don't produce any oxygen. Yeah, no, in the first year of its existence, Franklin Roosevelt's Civilian Conservation Corps planted over a million trees. And, you know, that, that is carbon sequestration. You're absolutely right. And that's, that's another step. And, you know, and there's, there's a bunch of other pieces to this, but let's start there. David in Neckline, Wisconsin. Hey, David, what's up? You know, Michael Moore obviously came out with his film a couple of weeks ago debunking a lot of what renewable energy is. Yeah, and then the film the got debunked. The, that film well, is so I, filled I, with inaccuracies okay, so. and errors. In fact, the, in essence, what the film is saying is as if back in 1895, somebody said, yeah, this light bulb from Thomas Edison, you know, it only burns for about 12 minutes. And, uh, you know, we should just go back to candles. I mean, that, that video so, is an abomination. So let me just point out to you really quickly. Uh, on the BBC uh, website, Matt McGrath, uh, September 13th of 2019, he talks about the electrical industry's dirty secret actually boosts warming. And it's in regard with the uh, chemical sulfur hexafluoride, SF6, and that is a gas that's 22,000 times worse than CO2, and that is used for wind farms because you have to obviously connect the electrical grid to obviously different you know factories and what have you, and that is an actual article that was uh, written. When I went to college, I studied electrical engineering. I, I'm a licensed electrical engineer, broadcast engineer, at least I was for many years, ham radio operator, other things. The largest source of dioxin in our environment, for example, for a long, long time, was the chemicals that were used to cool transformers that were on the poles near your house. 
And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about the chemistry associated with electronics, particularly high temperature, high voltage electronics. And once we figured out how destructive those chemicals were, we fixed it. Edison created a light bulb that wasn't very efficient. And now we have LEDs. The big argument of this, of this uh, so-called documentary that Michael Moore didn't make it, a friend of his made it, and Moore just put his name on it, you know, which in my opinion was a huge mistake. But basically the big argument is it's not perfect yet, so screw it. It's a terrible argument. It's a pathetic argument. And looking for little instances of, oh, well, let's pick apart green energy here. Let's pick apart green energy there. I mean, the one good point that that movie made was that biomass is a scam. Sure. I mean, that was, you know, 60% of the movie. But then he extended that logic to everything else, which is not a scam. We've got industries that are moving forward. In fact, they had some uh, solar panels in there that were very, very inefficient because they were like solar panels in the 70s or 80s. And he's like, oh, those are, you know, that'll only power a toaster. Well, actually, it would have powered a couple of houses. But, you know, so that was a lie. But on top of that, those were old technology. I just, you know, it, it troubles me when, you know, right-wingers come on this program and say, oh, green energy is a scam. We shouldn't be doing green energy. We just need to keep burning that oil that uh, Charles Koch's refinery down there is processing. Just keep burning that. It troubles me when conservatives say it. I think it's bizarre when people who say that they're progressives say it. I don't know how to deal with that. Rob in Chico, California. Hey, Rob, what's up? You know, you mentioned earlier that $3 million tax rate should be 90 percent and i don't know if you're talking about federal or total tax but federal why not a hundred thousand why not fifty thousand i mean how do you get three million you just kind of think that's about enough i'm 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 basing that on the historical tax rates if you take the top tax rate in the 1950s and the early 60s which was 91 percent and you look at how much money you had to earn to hit that. And it was a couple hundred thousand dollars, as I recall. I'd have to go back and look. It's been quite a few years since I wrote about this. But my recollection is that if you take that amount back then, that amount of income, and you inflation adjust it, in today's world, it would be roughly $3 million. It might be a little more than that. It might be four, five, six but, million, but something why? like that. Why? Well, how do you base that? As, as if, as if three because million Because that's what worked. For anybody? That's what so worked you know for our country. Three million, is the, three million is the amount that is satisfactory to, to everybody. You're just omnipotent. Because that's that. what worked for our country, Rob. For 40 years, we had a top there's tax no, rate like zero that. Sign of, and why don't you do, why why do you want to raise as much tax as you can rather than raise the tax that you need? You would just like to get as much money into the federal coffers as possible. That's just so ridiculous. Rob, you're you're making assertions that have no basis in fact. My point is that for 40 years in this country, we had a tax system that reduced inequality. You had the middle class actually growing in wealth at a faster rate, not a, not a larger amount, but at a faster rate between 1940 and 1980. The middle class grew in wealth at a faster rate than did the top 5%. That all got reversed with Reagan's reversal. If you look at the countries of Northern Europe that are doing just fine, thank you very much. You know, Denmark right now has a 4.5% unemployment rate. Norway's in good shape. Sweden's in relatively good shape. You look at those countries, they have a similar tax structure. And it works. It, it historically works. When you drop that top tax rate below 50%, and I would say if you're looking for a magic number, that's it. 
when you drop that top rat tax rate below 50% for people making over three, four, five, ten million, whatever whatever number you want to pull out of your backside, whether it's a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred million dollars, whatever, you it would have to be a hell of a lot less than a hundred million dollars. Rob, Rob, I'm going to cut you off here. It's, uh, you know, uh, if you look at how this works, what you find is that inequality is destructive to society. This is not about trying to shovel as much money as possible into the federal coffers. The fact of the matter is that when people are looking at a 91% top tax rate, they don't make enough to hit it. I've told this story before back in the 1970s when we had that top tax rate. I, I, Terry O'Connor and I owned a company in, in, in Okemos, Michigan, in Lansing, Michigan, an herbal tea company, and we had a real successful product. And we made, for two years, we made a whole pile of money. And I remember our bookkeeper sitting down with us, and my dad was in the meeting. He, was, he taught Louise how to do double-entry bookkeeping. But our CPA sat us down and said, you guys are starting to hit 40%, 50% income tax rates on the money you're taking out of this company. And you will find that if you keep that money in the company instead and grow your business, over time, you're going to be way ahead of the game. And so we did that. We developed a new product line. We hired a few more people. We went from 12 employees to 18 employees. We gave our employees a raise. And sure enough, we made even more money. I mean, this, it's, this is just common sense stuff. Taxes act as essentially a regulator against greed. And out-of-control greed, which was celebrated, not just introduced, but celebrated by Ronald Reagan, and has been, this has been the case basically since 82, 83, since Reagan dropped the top tax rate down to 25%, is destroying the middle class. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Or let me be more precise, has destroyed the middle class. And the way you deal with unregulated greed is you regulate it with taxes. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary Ways to Show Them Compassion by Ingrid Newkirk and Jean Stone. This is from the very first chapter. Researchers at Germany's Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology were dumbfounded. The excitement wasn't over a new fossil or the discovery of a previously unknown human ancestor. It was over Rico, a border collie. In experiments conducted in 2004, the very normal-seeming 10-year-old canine had learned to fetch more than 200 objects on command, and moreover, remembered them all a month later. Determined to discover the limits of Rico's abilities, the research team subjected him to a battery of cognitive tests that revealed astounding problem-solving abilities. Rico could easily retrieve from another room items he was familiar with, but when told to retrieve a new item, one he had never heard before, Rico correctly deduced that the unknown name must correspond with an unknown object and correctly retrieved it. The Border Collie's cognitive abilities were subsequently compared to that of apes, dolphins, parrots, and eventually human children. Researchers often end up comparing their animal subjects' intelligence to humans, but is intelligence truly easy to compare animal to human or even animal to animal? If Rico could use the process of elimination to correctly fetch a tennis ball, does that make him smarter than an Arctic tern who journeys 44,000 miles each year between the North and South Poles? Is a piano-playing cat more intelligent than a chimpanzee who shares 99% of her DNA with humans and can learn sign language? Comparing the intelligence of animals is, in fact, no easier than comparing the intelligence of humans. Who's smarter, Aristotle or Plato? Newton or Einstein? Monet or Manet? The red-lipped batfish or Chinese giant salamanders? 
the Indian elephant or the African elephant. In the end, ranking the relative intelligence of animals is a futile exercise. What's more, a recent study found that less than 15% of the estimated 9 million species on Earth have been discovered. Who knows what fantastical creatures reside at our ocean's crushing depths, soar high in the stratosphere, or creep deep in the densest jungles. What fantastic intelligence do they display? Or, more so, what fantastic intelligence we can't even comprehend? We often consider intelligence as the only factor in determining which animals deserve compassion and which don't. Yet we're still so limited in our understanding of human intelligence that it makes little sense to calibrate our animal brethren based on how similar their brains are to ours. Or perhaps you could say it's simply not an intelligent way to determine importance. The goal of this book is not to merely question that superiority or to show that animals think and act like us. It's to show how they do not and to honor those differences. How can anyone compare the mental faculties of a gibbon vaulting through the forest with a giant blue whale singing through the deepest oceans? Different animals excel at different actions. As we'll see in this book, animals think, navigate, communicate, love, and play in extraordinarily unique ways. However, for many years, scientists believed that intelligence was indeed all that mattered when it came to animals, and that intelligence consisted of a continuum with humans at the most developed end. Every other species could fit neatly into that spectrum, a concept heralded by the great naturalist Charles Darwin, who wrote in his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, that, quote, the difference in mind between man and the higher animals, great as it is, certainly is one of degree and not of kind, end quote. In essence, Darwin meant that because all animals share a common ancestor, they also share the same toolkit of mental abilities, but at different levels. Not a new idea. 2,400 years ago, Aristotle presented his idea of natural ladder, or scala natura. Like Darwin, Aristotle advanced that all life could be conveniently ranked with lesser animals, like worms, on one end, intermediate animals, like dogs and cats, in the middle, and higher animals, such as monkeys and humans, at the far end. During the Middle Ages, Christian theologians expanded on Aristotle's teachings with the great chain of being, a hierarchical scale that began with God at the very top, followed by angels, humans, other animals, plants, and then minerals. Each layer of the chain also had its own hierarchy. Among humans, for instance, kings, aristocrats, and other noblemen were at the top, while peasants were relegated to the bottom. The highest-ranking animals were large carnivores, like lions and tigers, who were untrainable and therefore seen as superior to docile animals like dogs and horses. Even insects were subdivided, with honey-producing bees ranked higher than mosquitoes and plant-eating beetles. Finally, at the very bottom sat snakes, their lowly station, a result of the serpent's deception in the Garden of Eden. Even throughout the 20th century, scientists clung to the notion that animals could be neatly ranked by their human intelligence. Scientists devised increasingly cruel experiments that could serve as universal tests for animal cognition, many of them led by University of Wisconsin-Madison psychologist Harry Harlow. Previously, Harlow was best known for a series of experiments from the 1950s in which he removed infant rhesus monkeys from their mothers and provided them surrogate mothers made from wire. The traumatized monkeys' desperate attempts to be caressed by their inanimate mothers during times of stress became the basis for research into maternal separation, dependency needs, and social isolations. Many historians cite Harlow as a factor in the rise of subsequent animal liberation movements. Animal Kind is the book by Newkirk and Stone.
Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you, uh, picking up your phone calls here. John in Seattle. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, uh, Tom. I've been reading Piketty's latest book, Capital and Ideology, in which he has extended his understanding of capitalism to include most of the last 500 years. He identifies three eras. In each era, the wealthy have taken a bigger share of the pie, ending in first era, the sort of the medieval era ending about 1790, the second era up to World War One, ending in 1914, and in the present. And there's a huge amount in this book. It's it's just astonishing his work. But the the specific insight I get out of the first half of the book is that it doesn't matter what the rules are. The rich will subvert the system and take more each time. Maybe today the rule is the Koch brothers lying about the way they use 401kc organizations, as one learns from Jane Mayer's Dark Money book. But the Piketty looking at all of this, and, and I was specifically triggered to call you today because of your mention of Germany. He speaks of the Germany, Austria, and the Nordic countries as having created a taxation system and a management system that has prevented the excesses of Reaganism and Thatcherism that we have been suffering under. Through anyway. uh, presumably higher income taxes, estate taxes, and 50% of the board being made up of workers? Is that what you're talking about? Bingo. Bingo. In fact, the second heavy half unionization. of the book I'm looking for Yep. The second half of the book I'm looking forward to is he actually has some countervailing pressures that we could use against the fact that Exxon owns, you know, five trillion barrels that we don't want them to take out of the ground and we can't afford to pay them for it. In 1804, when Haiti became independent, they adopted a debt to pay for the loss of slaves by French plantation owners that was 300% of their income annual product. It took them 150 years to pay for. We are greatly at risk in an ownership-only society. We need something like temporary ownership or acceptance of risk on the part of those who make investments that they might actually not come into fruition. And Piketty, despite being, you know, such an astonishingly great writer and informative, has actually got some thoughts about how we might rebalance things. It is both synoptic and I I told the the gal who answered the phone that I wanted to do a book report. But what I'm really Mm -hmm. wanting to share with you is this fact that the rich are good at subverting the rules. It doesn't matter what the rules are. In the case of the Koch brothers, think about their network of 401c3 foundations that are ostensibly not doing political activity, that nakedly do political activity, and nobody's suing them. Nobody's getting them to pay taxes. You know, we're losing our republic, as you pointed out. 
I'm with you. I'm with you. John, I'll have to check that out. I, I tried to read Capital, his last book. It was uh, it was just too dense. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I wish there had been a Cliff Notes version or my schedule is so nuts. I mean, you know, I spend the mornings uh, doing this show and doing prep for it and the late evenings. And then the, my afternoons, I'm writing my own books. And so it's hard to find yeah. time to, you know, read a, a 500 page book. But Piketty that is a one. brilliant writer. And so... And the first book was much drier. You know, out of that, I got like three points about how economics operates in some data series. But what happened was apparently it triggered the collection of data by hundreds of folks around the planet. And so this second book, he's got a broader survey. He's taken a longer view, looking at the era of clergy, nobility and labor, which he calls trifunctional the era of proprietarianism when the franchise was extended during the 19th century, and it looked like we might get a handle on wealth, and then the current era of ownership. It's actually way more informative. Thank you, John. I I appreciate the information. I really do. And I look forward to the book. In fact, I'm going to order it this afternoon. Paul in St. Louis. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, Tom. You've been talking about excessive greed today, and I found a word that doesn't get mentioned much, but it's actually the definition of greed is uh, pleonexia, and it's from the ancient Greek word. I googled your dictionary, and that's the name of the the site, your dictionary. The second definition is a psychiatric disorder characterized by greediness and excessive desire for acquisition of wealth and objects. So... Pleonexia? Pleonexia. P-L-E-O-N-E-X-I-A. Pleo is the root. Words, and you said that's Greek. What What does it mean? Do you know? It just says here it's a, it's a noun, and it says excess. Uh, the first part of the definition is excessive or insatiable greed, avarice, covertness, the desire to have more, a greedy desire for certain goods. Wow. Wow. Pleonexia is the root of all evil. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know, we, we can rewrite First Timothy. Paul, thank you for the call. That's fascinating. I'll, I'll have to check that out. I appreciate it. Win in Salon, Maine? Solon. Solon. Simple, okay. But, okay. So what's up? Well, I originally called to talk about the mortality rate and how that has continued to increase. I've been tracking it. I'm a scientist and a mathematician, and I've been tracking the mortality rate of this so-called crisis since February, and it started out at 0.9% mortality rate, and it's steadily increased, even through, here we are going to open up, right? It's now over 6%, okay? And it went over 6% two, three days ago. Now, these are all the figures that are reported, of course, and that's my main gripe. We do not have data. We're being, you asked the question, you know, they're hiding. You said the Trump administration is hiding stuff from us. Yeah, they are. You know, we don't have data. I can't get good data. I can't get racial types. I can't get ages. I can't, because I do derivations on the data. Like so the hang on, just say, we have 1.3 million diagnosed cases in the United States, and we have 81,000 deaths. Uh, you're saying that that's six percent. I can't do the math that fast in my head, but that sounds about right. You know, as of today, it's six point oh six. So 
something like that, between 6.06 and 6.1% mortality rate. Right. And it's increased every day until getting into the rate of the rate, rate which is a derivation. So if, okay. you, if you look at, at Germany, they're at 172,000 with 7,000 deaths. That would be closer right. to 5%, wouldn't it? 4.5% if I'm doing my back of the envelope math fast enough? Okay, give me those numbers again really quick. I can do it in seconds. It's, it's what? 172,000 172, cases, 7,600 deaths. 7,600 deaths? That is 0.04. Unless I punched so it wrong. So that's uh, roughly 4%. 4%, yeah. 4%. Yeah. 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 Whereas and, we're and, running around 6%. And you wonder how much of that is an artifact of our healthcare system or just the fact, you know, we've got 40% of the American population is living in poverty. The diseases of poverty make you more vulnerable to dying from COVID if you get it. Correct. And Not the, a problem the, that they have in Germany. But then there's the rate of the rate. You know, this is increasing. And strangely enough, two weeks ago, we started talking about opening up. All of a sudden, what we have is a decrease in the rate of the rate. And so I think somebody's hiding something. It just doesn't happen like that. Yeah. You know? Well, we know Ron DeSantis is hiding numbers in Florida. Greg Abbott is probably hiding them in Texas. Uh, you've got the meatpacking plants. I believe it was Nebraska, might have been Iowa, we're told. You don't have to report these. Don't worry. It's you know proprietary corporate information. When there's something going on here, as you dig into this and dig a little deeper and find out what's going on, give me, give me a shout back next week. Let's keep us all up to date, Doc. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
has the economic shutdown all around the world, which, which has caused our air to be clear, our skies to be free of jet trails, contrails, and all that kind of stuff. Has that taken us to the point that the IPCC said we needed to be to at this point? Remember, they said you got, about three years ago, they said you got 10 years to get your act under control or all is lost. Did this do it or do we need to go even farther, number one? Number two, uh, what about these large chunks of the world? We're now hearing warnings from scientists that much of equatorial planet Earth, the equator, the, the area around the equator, within a few years will become uninhabitable. It's going to become like the Sahara Desert. Is it time to stop letting Republicans run government? Because obviously they don't believe in government. Why are we letting them run government? Why do we elect these people who don't believe in government to run the government? It's like hiring a, uh, a chiropractor who doesn't believe in pharmaceuticals. And there are some. There's a lot of chiropractors who are great. I, you know, I've used chiropractors since I, was, uh, you know, since I broke my back when I was 19 or 20 years old. But you know, I've run across a few who are like, oh, you shouldn't take drugs, just take vitamin C. It's like hiring one of those people to be in charge of your cancer treatment or your brain surgery. It's like hiring somebody who thinks the, the Earth is flat to design the space program. It's, it's like, I mean, you know, come up with your metaphor. I didn't mean to pick on chiropractors. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, but you get what I'm saying. Tell me, why? Are we hiring people? Why are we voting for people for our city council, for our county commissioners, for our local sheriffs, for our state legislatures? for our governorships, for our senators, for our members of the House, for president? Why are we hiring people who don't believe in government to run the government? I mean, isn't it obvious now what happens? 40 years of Reaganism, 40 years of hate government Republicans. We have gutted the middle class. We're in the midst of, of, of what's going to be the, the, the second Republican Great Depression in 100 years. We've got people dying. We've, we have lost more people in three months than we lost in the entire Vietnam War, than the entire Korean War. We've lost three times as many people as we lost in the entire Revolutionary War. It's insane. In Australia, from the beginning, from back in January when the first deaths started happening, Australia has had 97 people die, the whole country. You know, here in Oregon we've had, I think it's 120 some odd die. The entire country, and we're doing really good. We had like 50, 60 new cases yesterday, statewide. Governor Kate Brown has crushed this virus so far, knock on wood. I feel safe here. Well, it's even better in Australia. The whole damn country, 97 deaths over three months. They have broken the back of the virus. In New Zealand, they've only had 21 deaths. The whole country, their hospitals are not overwhelmed. Their people are not freaked out. They're reopening their economies. People are going back to the beaches and the stores. And Australia and New Zealand are talking about creating basically a giant free trade zone between the two of them, where their people can travel back and forth and their goods can travel back and forth. You know, the major source of tourism to New Zealand is actually Australians. So, hey, let's open it back up. They also want to extend this to some of the Pacific Island nations that have no cases. There are some island nations that have no cases, and there's, a, there's quite a few where they've done the same thing. They've broken the back of this, and it might eventually extend to Taiwan and South Korea. We need leadership of government that believes in and knows how to run good government. 
But instead, what do we have? We, what we have here is the Trump administration, where Donald Trump goes on TV and says, oh yeah, this drug I heard about on Fox News, this is wonderful. This is, uh, it's going to be very exciting. I think it could be a game changer. It could be a game changer. Very powerful. They're very powerful. End quote. So the Veterans Administration tried this out on a couple hundred veterans. The people who received the standard course of treatment, 11.4% of them died. The people who received the hydrochloroquine, 27.8% died. Bottom line, they killed a bunch of veterans to find out if Donald Trump's cockamamie idea, the, the Fox News idea, worked. And it didn't work. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.